Hey everyone, this podcast episode is with myself and Jerry Gatto from Gatto Law. We cover everything you need to know about closing on a property in Ontario, including title insurance, closing costs, mortgage insurance, best mortgage payment frequency to choose, and what to do if there are any issues with your property before and after closing. Jerry Gatto and his team are one of the 12 all-star sponsors we have at our upcoming Your Life, Your Terms event happening in Mississauga on Saturday, October 14th, 2023. Jerry and his team will be set up in the event hall the entire day for you to connect with him and ask him any questions you might have around real estate law, properties, joint ventures, whatever. Some of the other sponsors you can connect with at this event are Rent Panda, Tenant Placement, Welcome Home Property Management, Bull Bitcoin Exchange, Better Mortgage Select, Cherry Chan Accounting, Graybrook Realty, Southern Impression Homes in Florida, Calvert Mortgages, Kelly Hawks Paralegal, and Bitcoin for Kids. Plus, you can network with the thousand plus, yes, thousand plus other people attending this event, most of whom are local Ontario active real estate investors that you can connect with and learn from each other. We're pumped up and registration is about to close for good as we are dangerously near hitting our cap on people and hitting the fire code limit for the event hall. So depending on when you hear this podcast, you still have one final last chance to purchase a ticket to attend this event and see all the event details, including the awesome speakers we have lined up at yourlifeyourtermsevent.com. As always, Rockstar Inner Circle members get in for free and that's yourlifeyourtermsevent.com to check out all the awesome event details and possibly purchase a ticket if there is still space left. Rockstar members, this is also your last chance to register before the doors close. You get final preference for the remaining spaces, but still, please register ASAP as doors are about to slam shut. And now, Jerry Gatto, everyone. Are you ready to live life on your terms? Is it time to take charge? Real estate, business building, the economy, health and nutrition, and more. It's the Your Life, Your Term Show with Tom and Nick Carazza. Are you ready? Let's go. Okay, I am live with Jerry Gatto, and Jerry is a real estate investing specialist lawyer, I would say, that helps a ton of Rockstar Inner Circle members uh, close on the real estate deals, other things as well, incorporations, even a bit of litigation, I think you were talking about. Some wills and estates. Some wills and estates. So very involved uh, with real estate investors in particular, though. So I wanted to bring Jerry on and ask him about closing costs in Ontario. So what exactly are they made of? What are we paying for? What's the breakdown? um, so why don't we start with roughly how much they are? Okay. All right. So, um, a few factors that need to be taken into consideration when you're closing a transaction. A, you've got legal fees, you've got title insurance, a land transfer tax, you've got, um, a tax adjustment on closing. Um, and I'll explain that in a second. And you've got, uh, condo fees if you're purchasing a condo and you've got Sometimes, depending who the lender is, you've got lender fees, and if you're getting a uh, high ratio mortgage for your principal residence, you got provincial sales tax on the CMHC fee that that needs to be taken into consideration. Typically, legal fees, fees, disbursements, searches, things in that nature, you, you're typically running in around twenty-one, twenty-two hundred dollars all in. Um, then you've got title insurance, and title insurance uh, depends on the value of the property, just like car insurance, right? I drive a Volkswagen, you drive a Ferrari, you're going to pay more for your insurance than I am. So typically, a, trend, a, a 
a purchase, say between five to seven hundred thousand dollars. Land uh, title insurance is typically in the six to seven hundred dollar range. You buy a property over in excess of a million dollars, you could be looking at a thousand to twelve hundred dollars for title insurance. Now, title insurance, you know, covers a variety of things, and unfortunately, if you're getting a mortgage, you don't have a choice. The bank insists on the purchaser getting title insurance because it protects the bank from fraud if if the purchaser is the is the fraudster and it protects the purchaser from fraud so if you know 10 years down the road you, you lose your driver's license you lose your passport things of that nature then title insurance steps in and, and protects you. Like car insurance, somebody smashes your car, you call your insurance company, they come in and they fix the problem for you. Title insurance also protects against um, potential work orders that are unknown at the time of closing. I just had one where um, a client purchased a property and there was a deck that had been built, but hadn't been built according to the building code. So the city of Hamilton happened to be, go to this person's property, noticed the deck, issued a work order against the deck. We contacted title insurance. Title insurance rectified the problem. Again, very similar to car insurance. You can take a cash settlement. So my client in that particular case decided to tear down the whole deck took a cash settlement from, from the title insurance company and then built the deck. In Th this was after he closed on the after property? After closing, after closing. So it was yeah. assumed that the deck was proper? Uh, Properly built, yes. Because we don't, uh, on a single family residential home, we don't check work orders. Title insurance covers you for that. If it's a duplex, triplex, we do zoning, we do work orders, we do fire department searches, so less likely. But if a, if a buyer has built something that nobody's aware of, you know, Italian style that, that, you know, when I was in Italy, uh, you know, everybody's building at night. And I was asking some, why is everybody building? Oh, because no building inspectors aren't working at night. So you can build all you <laughs> want. Right. Now, so that's very similar. Right. If somebody, you know, does something inside the house, builds a deck without anybody knowing about it, without anybody catching them. And then you end up purchasing that property. Well, there's not going to be anything on record that this thing was built illegally. So, if, you know, down the road, a year, two, five years down the road a building inspector comes in and notices that, hey, an addition was built or a deck was built without proper permits, they're going to slap a work order against you. Before you ever bought the property. Before you ever bought the property. Obviously, okay. if you do it, then it's your problem. But if, you know, the, the seller built the deck a month or two before you purchased the property, and now it turns out that the deck was built without proper permits, they'll issue a work order, title insurance will step in and, and uh, cover you, and they'll fix a problem. If they gotta hire engineers, they gotta hire architects, they gotta, you don't fix it, they do all of that at no cost whatsoever to the... Hmm. So title insurance basically ensures that everything that you're purchasing, the title of that property is all above board. It's, it's after, no, clear. up until, up until the closing date, that's my job, right? I, I check the title. We do a full 40 year search. We go back, we check if there's any liens, executions, things of that nature on the property. Um, but subsequent to that, there was an article in the paper just the other day where a young couple went on vacation. They came home, somebody else was in their house. Somebody got, got, got their hands on their ID, sold the house while they were away, and somebody was in. Oh, wow. Happens, because everything's electronic. And so, 
if I get my hands on your ID, it's not difficult to put a mortgage or to, to sell your house without you knowing about it. So the title insurance covers you from the day of closing forward. Right, I cover you back. I I search so when I when we close a transaction, I certify title to you. I say, Anthony, you've got a good marketable title. There's no issues. If it turns out that there is an issue, that's on me. Title insurance covers you after closing. So if there's anything that comes up after closing that um, was unknown at the time that we purchased. That's a title. So, for example, that deck, you wouldn't have been able to find I out. I wouldn't have been able to find that out that deck wasn't wouldn't have been any work orders issued against it. Nobody even knew they, it was there. Oh, okay, because it was all under the table. Yeah, it was all done under the table. So, the title insurance picks all that up. So, that, I mean, that's an, an item that, I mean, I think everyone should have, especially nowadays with, with the amount of fraud going on. But So, you have an option to not get title insurance? If you're paying cash... If you're paying cash, you can opt out of title insurance. Okay. If you're getting a mortgage, you have no choice. Okay. You must get title insurance. Bank will not fund it without title insurance. Okay. All right. So, ninety-five percent of people purchase properties with with mortgages, so they so they have to get it. But even if you're that five percent paying cash, I always highly recommend to my clients. It's a, it's cheap insurance, and it's a one-time fee. It's not like house insurance where every month, every year you get your, your bill. Here, you pay it once, and you're covered for as long as you own the property. And roughly how much is it? Um, on a between six to $800,000, you're typically looking at between six to $700. Okay, so not too much. It's not, cra- it's not a yeah. crazy, you know, it's not tens of thousands of dollars, right? I mean, higher end property, if you're talking a million, $2 million, then it, it goes up. I've seen it as high as twelve, fifteen hundred. Sometimes I've even seen it at $3,000. Mm-hmm. Know, I've called the insurance company, oh my God. But like I said, same idea. If I buy a Volkswagen and you buy a Ferrari, your insurance is going to be higher than mine because the risk is higher, right? Obviously, someone steals your Ferrari, the insurance company is dishing out a lot more money for your your car replacement than they are for mine. And that's sort of how title insurance works. Okay. So is title insurance the one component that um, there's wiggle room on or optional, at least if you're paying cash, and then the rest of the closing costs? The rest of the closing costs are locked in no matter what? They're fixed, yeah. That, um, so the other big item when you're purchasing... Um, I'm going to leave Toronto out of it for just a second. But if you're purchasing anywhere in Ontario, saving except for for Toronto, you've got land land transfer tax. Land transfer tax is based on a percentage of the purchase price. And the way the formula works is you pay half a percentage for the first $55,000. Then you pay pay 1% from $55,000 to $250,000. So up to $250,000 your title insurance would be like your land transfer tax would be like $2,200 then from $250 to $450 you pay 1.5% so if you're purchasing a property of a value of $450,000 you're typically looking around $4,500 anything over $450,000 you pay 2% so if you're buying a property that say six hundred thousand dollars, on that hundred and fifty thousand dollars over the four fifty, you're paying an extra three thousand dollars. So uh, you know that would you end up be paying seventy five seventy five hundred dollars for land transfer tax. Um, in Toronto, it's double. Mm-hmm. Okay. It, um, Why is that? They can just get away with it? No, so Toronto, much- Toronto brought an application to the government of Ontario, asked them to allow them to to charge it. 
And what they do is, I believe last year, the year before, I heard a stat that they they earned income of about $28 million on the double land transfer tax. So in essence, what it does, it helps lower the property taxes in Toronto. So it, it helps that way. It doesn't help the guy that flips a lot of properties in Toronto because you're paying that, that double oh. uh, land transfer tax. But if you're buying a property in Toronto and you're hanging on to it for you know, 15 or 20 years, you'll probably make that back in savings on land transfer tax. So is that the purpose of the double? They're trying to dissuade the flippers and They're promote trying to dis- the... Well, not necessarily, but it... it, it it helps lower the property taxes on an annual basis mm-hmm. in Toronto. Other, I know other municipalities also went to the province of Ontario to try and get them to agree to allow them to do that. They were turned down. Mm-hmm. So the only municipality that has a double land transfer tax is Toronto. Everywhere else you pay the, the single. Now, if you're a first-time buyer in every other municipality, you save a maximum of $4,000. So if you're a first-time buyer and the property is going to be your principal residence, there's two components to it. To be a first-time buyer, never owned a property anywhere in the world, and this is going to be your principal residence. So if you're buying, first-time buyer and buying an investment property, you don't get the land transfer tax rebate. But if you do qualify, you save a maximum of $4,000. So on land transfer taxes, eight grand, first-time buyer, principal residence, you only pay $4,000. Okay, um, in Toronto it's double, so you would save eight thousand dollars. So you save the four on the Toronto and the four on the provincial. So um, it, it does help out a little bit, but again, it's it's really strict. And I've had clients that you know purchased and go, well, you know, I purchased the property, but it was an investment property, and now buying this property and it's going to be my principal residence. Unfortunately, they don't qualify because they're not first time buyers anymore. So it has to be you have to be a first time buyer. And it has to be your principal residence. Those are the two requirements. Is there a rough calculation to estimate how much all closing costs would be entitled? So everything you just mentioned, the disbursements, the taxes, the land transfer. You can't because the purchase price varies. The purchase price affects the land transfer tax. So if you're buying a million dollar property and I'm buying a $400,000 property, my closing costs are going to be lower because I'm paying less land transfer tax than you are. Okay, but could you take like, just for a rough guess, so you can kind of prepare for the closing, take 2% maybe of the purchase price and say, okay, I'll probably need 2%. Well, I I, I do have clients do that. It's a good, I've had clients that have used that formula. It's close. 2%. close, yeah. yeah. Now, what I normally do is what I say to all my clients, whenever you purchase a property, right, Give me a quick call. I do a quick, I offer a quick initial meeting with a client. I'll run through the cost with them, tell them what, what the land transfer tax is, guesstimate what the, the title insurance is going to be, give them an idea what the legal fees are going to be, right? The other variable is a tax adjustment. So on closing, we estimate what the taxes are for in this year, 2023. So we say the taxes, I use a simple example to everybody, say the taxes are $3,650. So we know your taxes are $10 a day. So we then divide that, we know the per diem is $10 a day. We then look at the closing date. So we calculate from January 1st to the day before closing. We say, okay, Mr. Seller, you should have paid $1,000 for your taxes. You've actually paid 
$2,000 for your taxes. So Mr. Buyer, you owe the seller $1,000 for that adjustment or vice versa. You should have paid $2,000, you've only paid $1,000. Mr. Purchaser gets a credit or Mrs. Purchaser gets a credit of $1,000 on closing. So that's a variable that we don't know until we, um, until we get the tax certificate back from the municipality, right? But I, you know, I can kind of roughly figure it out for clients within within a couple hundred dollars. The other thing, and depending on when the taxes are due, uh, like for example, if you're closing a transaction in Hamilton in the next couple of days, right? The next tax installment in Hamilton is due April 28th. Your institution is going to want that April 20 that April 28th tax installment paid because the taxes work that your April's so April's tax installment covers the month of April, the month of May, the month of June. So you you have to pay that in advance. So again, you have to you have to prep your clients. Say, hey guys, you know, you may not pick it up on the adjustment, but be aware that you know at the end of the month you're going to owe the city of Hamilton three months of taxes uh, again it may not be a closing cost but it's money that the purchaser is going to need to have available to them um, on closing some institutions if you're for if you're a high racial purchaser so if you're using Canada Mortgage and Housing or Genworth I think there's a or three of them out there some of them will want you to pay your taxes through the mortgage and they'll want taxes paid in advance so sometimes they'll ask the tax to be paid six months in advance again i don't know any of that until i see that's specifically for insured mortgages only yes well not only generally generally for insured mortgages i mean if you're putting you know 20 percent down 25 percent down generally they leave you alone with the taxes they let you pay the taxes on your own although i do have clients that like paying the taxes through the mortgage so one payment you pay your taxes you pay your mortgage and it's nice and simple mm -hmm. um, it helps with monthly cash flow i find yeah because every month you're just you have your set payments with your mortgage and your taxes broken down by the month and you just that's pay it that's right the only thing is the institutions charge it's not a big amount i think they charge you 25 or 50 dollars a year to do that for you mm -hmm. or you can call the municipality yourself send them a void check sign a pre-authorized payment and monthly they take the taxes out oh and they would do it on a monthly and they basis. do it for you yes they do it for you. so i say to clients why well, you got to pay you know a bank 50 dollars to do that all you do is send a check, fill out the form, and it's done. And it's a one-time exercise. And every year they'll they'll write you and say, "Hey, this year we charge you two hundred fifty dollars a month. We're going to bump it to two seventy. Mm. And they just continue. So it's not like every year you have to send them a a, a new pre-authorized payment form or anything. Once you set it up, you're set up for as long as you own the property until you want to end it. The only problem on a sale, and I always warn my clients, and I've had this problem. Problem. For for a seller to stop the pre-authorized payments, most municipalities need 15 days notice. So if I'm closing a transaction on April 25th and my next payment's coming out May 1st, and if I haven't contacted the municipality prior to April 15th, that May 1st payment's coming out. So I always ask my clients, because then what I'll do is when I when I make an adjustment with the uh, purchaser, I will adjust for that May 1st payment to come out. 
because I know it's coming out. And what I'll do is I'll hold back sufficient, I'll hold back that payment from the from the seller. Once they provide me proof that that May 1st payment came out, then I release the money to them. And it, you know, and sometimes clients, no, 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 I've got it, I've got it. And then all of a sudden, you know, May 1st, they call me going, oh, that, that payment came out of my bank account. I go, well, I, I know I asked you to stop the payments. Anyway, most, we do sign an undertaking to readjust with the, with the buyer. So if you do that, we send a letter to the buyer's lawyer, say, hey, look, you know, the May 1st payment came out of $250, $300. Have your client send us the, the $300. Okay. So, I mean, that happens sometimes. The other variable is, depending on who the institution is, if there's a commitment fee that they charge you, sometimes some institutions, mostly B lenders, um, they'll charge a 1% lender fee. That comes off the top. So again, until I see your commitment, so that isn't amortized with the mortgage. That's a one. That that's 1% a one. That comes off the top. Taken on am, closing. Yes, that's taken on closing. What they do amortize is the 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 default insurance. They'll amortize that on on your mortgage. They'll add that to your mortgage. Um, but there is a provincial sales tax, eight percent, on that uh, default insurance that comes out of your pocket as well. Okay, so if you're getting a high ratio mortgage or a, you're you're getting a mortgage where you're putting less than 20% down, you need the mortgage insurance. You need the mortgage insurance. Then you're going to get hit with that HST bill on the closing. Not HST, provincial, 8%. They don't charge a 13. Oh, sorry, 8%. 8%. Yeah, okay. they only charge a provincial portion to it. So if you're, you know, if you're... Uh, your default insurance is ten thousand dollars, right? You're gonna you're gonna need another eight hundred dollars to to close that transaction. Okay, you'll need that. That's in addition, and I have lots of clients confused about that. They go, well, no, no, that's being added to the mortgage. No, the high ratio mortgage amount is being added to your mortgage, but the provincial sales tax is coming out of your pocket, and again, that adds to your closing costs. Okay. And that's why I always like to have an initial, especially for, you know, um, new clients purchasing their first property, either as an investment or as a principal residence. I always encourage an initial meeting with me, which takes us like a half hour. I give them a nice little spreadsheet. That way they can, I might be off by a couple hundred dollars, but I'm not going to be off by thousands of dollars. So, okay. you know, I may say to hey, Anthony, I'm going to, you know, give or take $500. Well, most people, $500 is not going to make a difference. I'm not going to be $10,000 off. And that way I can, you know, you tell me who the institution is. I, I, I have a good idea who charges the commitment fee, who charges the, um, there's an interest adjustment. So if you're closing, like some institutions, excuse me, I'll use home trust as an example. They like their payments to be made on the first of every month. So if you're closing a transaction April 10th, your first payment on the mortgage is not going to be till June 1st. But what they do is on April 10th, when they advance the money, they withhold the interest that has accru that will accrue from April the 10th to May 1st. Now you're going you, you're going six or seven weeks before you make a, a mortgage payment because your first payment is not till June 1st. But you're getting hit with that interest adjustment on the closing. Wait, would the first mortgage payment be June 1st or May 1st? June 1st. So you're, but if you're closing close on, on April 10th, yeah. the interest adjustment date will be May 1st. Your first mortgage payment would be June 1st. Why wouldn't the first mortgage payment be May 1st? Because it, mortgages accrue. So on mortgages, you always go backwards. You always pay backwards. So on May 1st, 
it will not have been a whole month. If you're closing on March 29th, then your first payment would be May 1st. As long as it's, if it's past the first of the month, Home Trust charges you an interest adjustment to May 1st, then your mortgage officially starts May 1st. That's called the interest adjustment date. So the interest adjustment date would be May 1st. Your first payment would start June 1st. Now, institutions like um, Bank of Nova Scotia, if you close on April the 10th, your first payment will be May 10th. Mm. and then June 10th, so on. But there are some institutions that like their payments only on the first of the month. So they prorate it. So they prorate it. So they, they prorate that interest payment, and they say, hey, you owe us 20 days of interest. We're taking that off the advance we're giving to Gatto. Okay. So when you pay rent for a property, like you pay, let's say, the first of the month, and then you're paid up for that whole month. That's correct. You're kind of prepaying with the mortgage. It's backwards. Uh, you get exactly. the month of and the mortgage, what, and then you pay at the end of the month? Exactly. And oh. that's, what accruing, that's what accruing means right my interest runs from may 1st to june 1st on june 1st i'm paying for the month of may hmm. july 1st i'm paying for the month of june so interesting i have clients call me they're selling a property and it's you know june 20th and i say well there's you owe 20 days of interest what do you mean i paid june 1st no but june was for may you still owe that 20 days now from June 1st from your last payment to when we pay them out. Because, and that's one of the reasons why like a, a bi-weekly payment um, is you're paying off your mortgage a lot quicker because you're, you're, you're nipping away at that um, pre, at the accrued interest a little quicker. You're not letting it run for 30 days. You're only letting it run for two weeks. Then you make a payment. Then you run it two weeks, then you make a payment. So you're 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 cutting away at that principle a little quicker every two weeks. And then that way the interest, because you're cutting down the principal just a smidge faster, yeah. there's less interest because there's less principal. Absolutely. So if you run an amortization schedule on your on your computer and you say, I'm gonna make monthly payments and then you do bi-weekly payments, you'll see that the amortization, the pay-down date, will be less with the bi-weekly payments. And then, all, you know, sometimes a client will pick on a bi-weekly payment, they'll pick to pay every two weeks half of the mortgage payment. So if I'm paying $1,000 a month, you know, over the course of a year, I'd be paying $12,000. Well, if I choose to pay bi-weekly and I pay $500 every two weeks, well, at the end of the year, I've actually given them $13,000. So not only have I cut away at that accrued interest every two weeks, I've actually given them an extra $1,000 that goes towards the principal. And that's why if you, you know, if it's your principal, investors don't do that because investors like to keep the interest as high as but if it's your principal residence, right, I always encourage clients to try and do the, the accelerated bi-weekly payments because your amortization, as I said, if you run an amortization schedule, I, I believe, and I may be not exactly right, but I think the amortization, it saves you three to four years on that amortization. So you're saving, you're cutting, you're paying off your mortgage four years quicker. Just going to bi-weekly. Just going bi accelerated bi-weekly. But you are paying slightly more money for the you're year. You're paying a little bit more. You're paying it so 
Isn't it because there's 52 weeks in the year correct. and then the breakdown right. is That's like right. 26 payments with five weekly? Which is 13 months. 13 months. Right. 26, yeah, divided That's by right. two versus just 12. 24. That's correct. God. That's what I said. Using the example of 500 because I'm a lawyer, not an accountant. Yeah. You know, instead of paying $12,000 over the course of a year, you're actually paying 13000 and that extra 1000 is going dollar for dollar against the principal. So your mortgage has come down by an extra $1,000. So it's a twofold effect. The accrued interest is being hit quicker, plus you're giving a little extra money. Smart. And then you're saying investors usually prefer not to do that because they'd rather keep the money? That's right. The, the investor, typically the investor is looking to buy a second property or a third property or fourth property. So if you're not going to pay, most investors that I've run into like to keep that mortgage as high as possible because if there is any extra money they like to put it aside as a down payment for a future purchase mm -hmm. and that interest is tax deductible yes that interest if it's an investment property is tax deductible yeah so it goes against your it goes against your rental income yeah so it's not as um Onerous. Say, not yes. as onerous, yes. If not you're, as if you're, if it's your principal. Now the difference is obviously if it's your principal principal residence, you don't get to deduct the taxes, you don't get to deduct the interest, any of your expenses. However, if you make a hundred or two hundred thousand dollars in five years or ten years, that money is also tax free. Where an investor, I get the deductions, but I have to pay capital gains on on my got it my profit at the end of at the t when I end up selling the property. Yeah. So with the personal residence, you're incentivized to pay it off quicker because that interest isn't tax deductible. Correct. You're just correct. paying. You're just borrowing money. You're renting That's money. Correct. So you want you want to try and get at it as as quickly as possible. Yeah. And I'm you know and I don't think and I, and I know there's some clients that pay weekly. I don't think there's a huge difference although a little bit but I don't think there's a huge difference between a bi-weekly payment again they give you the option of uh, doing so the example with the twelve thousand dollars what you can do if you don't want to do the accelerated you only want to pay the twelve thousand you take the twelve thousand divide it by 26 and that would be your bi-weekly payment so instead of giving them $500 a month, you'd end up giving them four and change, which at the end of 12 months equates to $12,000. And sorry, what's the, why, why do that? Well, it, you can't afford it, right? I mean, oh, okay. you know, you're, you're dishing out 13, you're dishing out an extra $1,000. By doing the accelerated biweekly, you're actually paying an extra $1,000. Well, if your budget doesn't allow you to do that, at least they tell clients, okay, if, if all you can afford to do is pay the $12,000 at least do the accelerated and divide that 12,000 by 26 payments because you're at least taking advantage of the accelerated the accelerated interest payments Oh, Even because you're, you're not paying any extra. Because still less interest accruing. Cause yes, you're still because you're paying bi-weekly. Hitting it bi-weekly. Yes, you're, oh, you're still hitting it. So Can you go even earlier than bi-weekly? Weekly? You can go weekly if you want. Daily? I don't think you can go daily. Okay. I don't think you can go daily. Um, you can go, I know a lot of institutions do allow you to go week, weekly. Most, most it's bi-weekly. So they give you the option of going bi-weekly. Some even give you the option of going semi-monthly. So you would pay on the first of every month and on the 15th of every month. <laughs> instead of every two weeks because there's going to be you know unfortunately by doing the bi-weekly there's going to be some months where you're making three mortgage payments mm. right 
because there's some months where there's there's going to be three times where you have to make a mortgage. It'd be the first of the month, fourteenth of the month, and then twenty eighth of the month. That's right. Oh wow. Right. So that you know. Yeah. It, so it's it, a cash flow management. It's problem. Ca- it, correct. Yeah. Correct. Interesting. Okay. So closing costs, we covered that for sure. Yes. Um. So talk to your lawyer. I think we can summarize. Maybe talk to your lawyer as soon as you have an accepted offer or approved financing with a commitment. Correct. With a commitment. Yes. Okay. To get a rough idea of what to expect, and then have that ready upon closing on top of the down payment. Correct. So what we do is typically um, at our office, we typically meet the client a few days before closing. Um, We'll give them what the balance owing is, which includes closing costs, the remainder of the deposit, right? Any interest adjustment, all those numbers. So we say, Anthony, you got to bring us in $110,000, right? So either we do a virtual meeting and we'll send you our banking information. You can go direct deposit into our bank account, or you come in in person into the office and bring the check with you. Some people have their money tied up and, you know, I mean, we always ask for the money in our hand at least the day before closing. And the reason we do that is there's a glitch and for some reason your money's tied up. If you're trying to do it the morning of closing and your money's tied up, now we might have a problem. At least if it's a day or two before closing and there's a glitch, we, you do have a couple of days to fix it. Mm-hmm. So we always encourage clients the day or two before closing to get the money into our bank account. Yeah, and closing can be stressful enough. So yeah, it's that's stressful a good idea. enough, correct, right? I yeah. mean, and, um, you know, some clients go, oh, you've got all my money. You know, why can't I have my key by nine o'clock? Well, because there's a second component to all of this. I need the 500 or 600 or 700 from Bank of Nova Scotia, Canadian Toronto Dominion Bank, right? That money's got to come into my office as well. And I always say to clients, you know, if you're first on the queue, I might have your money at nine o'clock in the morning. Unfortunately, if you're number 500 in the queue, I may not get your check till two o'clock in the afternoon. Hmm. And that dictates when, when you get your keys. And getting your keys is, I always use the analogy, and all my clients know this, it's like buying a car. I come to your lot, I give you your $20,000 for your for the car, I get to drive away with the car the minute I give you the $20,000. I'm not gonna give you 20 grand and you go to me, I'll come pick up your car tomorrow. No, I want my car right now, here's my money. Or vice versa, I'm not giving you the keys to the car to drive away until I got your $20,000. And a home is exactly the same thing. Once I, I've had clients say, well, you know, I've got till six o'clock to get out of the house. I go, no, you don't. You have until I have the fund. Once I have the funds in my account and the property's been transferred, you no longer own that property. You need to be out of that house. Hmm. So if we close a deal at two o'clock in the afternoon, the new purchaser owns that house at two o'clock. Yeah, get out. Get out, right? Now, you know, the reality of it is, isn't it quite as simple as buying a car, right? Because you've got movers coming in. So, I, you know, if I'm acting for a seller, I normally say, you know, if you're out of the house by 4, 4.30 on the day of closing, that's a good time. Because a purchaser, by the time we close a deal, by the time it gets registered, by the time you give them the code or you come and pick up the key, they're, they're not getting there much before 4 or 4.30. Yeah. But, I, you know, I've had, I've had purchasers buy a house and they get there. I mean, my worst story is that, you know, the guy closed on a Friday and he gets to the house and people are sitting there having dinner like it's a normal Friday night. And in fact, 
It was a very, very good friend of mine. We laughed about it after. We didn't laugh that day, but we laughed about it after. He actually went back out to his car to ask his wife if that, if that was the right house. He said, we're flipping through our paperwork to see if that's a house we bought. He said, not one box was packed. Nothing. It was a normal Friday night for these people. They were sitting having pizza. The couple didn't end up getting out till Sunday afternoon. So he had to put his furniture in storage. Him and his wife and two children had to sleep in a motel for a couple nights. Oh, wow. And, and the problem is, is you've got recourse. You can sue them. But what are your damages? $1,500 at the end of the day, the storage, right? Are you going to take the guy to small claims court for $1,500, mm. right? Because now you got to take a day off work. you got to do a settlement conference. You gotta, so, you know, the problem. So I always say to my clients, go do your final inspection and make sure there's boxes packed and it looks like they're packing up. Because if it doesn't look like they're packing up, you better get a hold of me right away because it could be a problem. Hmm. How common is that, though? Pretty not rare. common, thank God. Not common. Yeah. But I, you know, I've had I've had clients. That, you know, people don't get out till six or six thirty. You know, because the agree. If you read the agreement of purchase and sale, and lots of clients misunderstand this, it says that you've got till six o'clock to close a transaction. On page one, it says you know closing date's going to be April twenty fourth, and it can't close past six o'clock. That's not the date. That's not the time that the possession. Exchanges hands. Possession exchanges hands the minute that the purchaser has given all of his money to the seller's lawyer and the transfer has been released. And that includes the bank's money too, right? Yes, that's right. That's the mortgage. That's everything. Like that's your everything. bank sending the seller's bank. No, the, the what happens or is to the, you, the, the, the money comes all to, to the lawyer. Because on closing, as a lawyer, when there's an institution involved, the lawyer wears two hats. He's the lawyer for the buyer, and he's also the lawyer for the purchaser. Unless it's a private mortgage, but I'm not going to get into that. But if I'm doing a mortgage with TD Canada Trust, they send me instructions, right? And once I've prepared all the paperwork and submitted all of my paperwork to them, your mortgage is $600,000, they'll release the $600,000 to me. I then take your hundred, their 600, and I cut a check to the seller's lawyer for the $700,000. Once he has that check, I do my quick sub-search, make sure there's no liens registered since we, we last searched at the property. I do execution searches. If all is clear, I tell the other lawyer he can he can release the funds. He then goes on to Terraview, releases the transfer to me. I register the transfer and I register the mortgage. So my obligation is to you as the buyer to make sure that you have a good and marketable title to that property with no liens, no executions, etc. I've got the same obligation to the institution to ensure that they have a good and marketable first charge on your property. Because if you stop paying your mortgage, they gotta be able to sell the house on you. And if there's other, if there's liens or execution against that property, that bank's coming to me saying, hey, you certified title to us, but it turns out that there's, you know, there's a mortgage, there's a notice of security, there's a, you know, a furnace that was never paid out, there's a hot water tank that was supposed to be paid out, never got paid out, right? So that falls on my shoulders. 
Hmm. But once that's registered, once the transfer is registered and the charge is registered, if that's two o'clock in the afternoon, the purchaser now owns that property. It's in his possession. He can go there. Now, the reality of it is you get there at 2.30 and the people are still moving. You can call the police. The police aren't going to do anything about it. They're going to go call your lawyer. Right. They're not. You know, it's funny because if somebody takes my car, my five thousand dollar car, I can call the police and they'll track it down. But if somebody's still in my million dollar house, the police, because it's it's more complicated. They don't understand. You're going to show up with a transfer in your hand. They don't understand what that is. Mm -hmm. So they're not going to get involved. I've had clients call the police. Police go. We're not getting involved. Call your lawyer. So unfortunately, I always tell I always tell buyers, you got to be a little flexible. As I said, if I'm acting for a seller, I normally say, if you're out of the house by 4, 4.30, that's usually a good time for you to be out. And that gives the purchaser an up. Because, you know, the purchaser, especially if it's a, if it's a principal residence, if it's an investment property, is not as uh, problematic. Because typically, investment property, unless you've got people coming in to look at the property as, as tenants and you've scheduled appointments, usually if, it, if they take a couple extra couple hours to get out, it's not that big, but that big of a deal. But if I got my moving truck and I'm on yeah. house A and I got my movers sitting there and I'm paying them by the hour, I want to get into my new houses as quickly as humanly possible. I don't want my movers there starting to move at six o'clock at night and I pay them till 10 o'clock. Got it. Yeah, I can see the importance of it for That's principal right. residents. Yeah. Um, and then just lastly, I wanted to ask you, what's most common with key pickup? Is it picking up the key in a lockbox of the property or picking it up from the lawyer's office? Since, since pre-COVID, you always picked up the key at the lawyer's office or sometimes the real estate agent's office. I mean, if you, you know, if Rockstar was, was acting for uh, the seller um, and the property was in Perry Sound, for example, we're not going to have the, the key brought all the way to Ancaster. So the client picks it up. So lots of times if, if in that situation, we would say, hey, leave the key at, you know, ABC real estate office and I'll just have my client pick it up there. But after COVID, most people are leaving lockboxes. So what's happening is that, you know, if I'm acting for the seller, the seller or the seller's agent will give me the code to the lockbox. I don't release that code till I'm in funds. And we've re once we've released the transfer, I'll then call the lawyer and say, hey, the lockbox code is one, two, three, four. Mm -hmm. and, the, and the buyer can go directly to the house and open the lockbox. And then the real estate agent goes a day or two day or two after to pick up their lockbox got it and people some you know lots of people now have the the, the codes on their door yep digital uh, keypad uh, the keypad which which helps so i you know i'll say to the seller leave all the keys in the house you know garage door openers things things of that nature you know mailbox keys and then the rest of the you know will give them the code to get in but you know we've had situations where the lockbox code is uh, you know is wrong somebody's given us the wrong lockbox code i understand there's some lockbox codes that get changed every 12 hours so you know there's all these new automated lockbox oh, codes wow. that, yeah. that automatically get changed so all of a sudden you get the clients sitting there and that's why on closing i always I always give my clients my cell phone number and i say you get there and there's a problem and it's 5 30 or 6 o'clock at night and you can't get into to the house right you know give me a call although 
you know, the house is yours. Yeah. You know, no different than, you know, I own my house for 10 years and I lock myself out of the house. I can get it. You know, you don't want to be breaking a window or of it, but the house is yours. You, you know, you do what you have to. But there have been times where we've had to track down the real estate agents and say, hey, guys, you gave us one, two, three, four, and it's not opening. Or the client's doing something, you know, I mean, that happens. Not a lot, but it does happen once in a while. Yeah, got it. Uh, lastly, actually, I thought of one more thing. What about unpaid utility bills, like to the city for water or hydro or gas? Uh, once you close on a property, can it be discovered that utility bills are behind or would that be caught in your title search? Um, if the utility bills, so in our title search, um, we check the taxes and we check water because those are municipal liens that run with the property. Hydro, uh, gas, those are bills that run with the person. So if you set up a, a gas account, you're personally responsible for that gas bill. That doesn't attach to the property. However, going back to title insurance, if it turns out that utility bills are not paid and hydro's calling you or gas is calling you, send, me, send the bills to me, I send it to title insurance, they worry about paying it, and they worry about tracking down the, the seller. Hmm. Taxes, we always get a tax certificate. I always order it's, it's title insurance covers it, but to me, the, the hassle in trying to readjust the taxes after closing is a pain in the butt. So for the, the 60 or $70 that it costs me to get a tax certificate along with a water certificate, right, is, well, is money well spent. It's less, you know, it, again, I, I use the analogy of a car. I love using cars as an analogy. You know, I know that they steal cars in this particular parking lot. I know I've got insurance, but if somebody steals my car, it, it's just a pain in the butt. Now I got to go call my insurance company. I got to do all this. And it's time wasted on my part as the consumer. So for my clients, yeah, I don't have to get a tax certificate. And there's lots of lawyers who do not get tax certificates. Lots of because title insurance goes, don't worry about it. If there's a problem with the taxes, we'll pay for it and we'll, we'll go after the, the seller for it. But to me, do you want to spend four hours trying to strain it out for, for the 60 or $70 that, that I spent to, to make sure that it's all paid and, and as your lawyer making sure that it's, it's done properly? To me, there's no question that getting a tax certificate is well worth the, the hassle. Yeah, got it. Okay. So even if there is no lien on the water, can there still be like water bills owing? Like yes. they, their last payment, they didn't pay it, but there's not a, there's technically no lien against it correct? because it's not overdue yet. But then that comes up after you've closed. Co correct. And the title insurance company co pays that. They would pay that out. They would pay that and they would worry about tracking down the seller. You as a you as the buyer do not have to worry about it. Okay. Got it. All right. Thanks, Jerry. That covers a whole lot, way more than I was planning. So that's great. Perfect. Thank yeah. you. Thanks. A big thank you to Jerry Gatto for sharing his time to discuss everything you need to know about closing on a property in Ontario. You rock, Jerry, and we love you. You can go to gattolaw.ca to connect with Jerry or email Jerry and his team at info at gattolaw.ca. That's gattolaw.ca or info at gattolaw.ca as an email. And you can possibly still buy a ticket for the Your Life, Your Terms event happening in Mississauga on Saturday, October 14th, 2023 by going to Your Life, Your 
thetermsevent.com where you can see all the awesome event details. We're about to hit our cap on space for this event and we'll be closing registration soon, if not already by the time you hear this episode. So this is your last chance to squeeze in while you still can. That's yourlifeyourtermsevent.com. If you're a Rockstar Inner Circle member, as always, you get into this event for free and get preference for these final spaces left, but you need to please register ASAP before the doors doors close for good. Thank you for listening, everyone, and we hope to catch you on the next episode.